0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series where I talk with writers, podcasters, artists, scholars, filmmakers, musicians about their favorite stories. And joining me today to talk about the 2012 short story Wind Eye by Brian Evanson is John Thompson. John is the editor of a really, truly awesome new anthology of weird fiction stories called Moon Calves. John, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of uh, Clay Tipple Media and Elder Science specifically. And it's just, a, it's a, a great honor to be here.
0: Well, I think it's an honor to have you on the show. As I told you before we started recording, I have read probably about a third of Moon Calves so far, and it's uh, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the stories here are really a great sample, I think, of what is often dubbed the new weird. They're are stories by writers we have covered on the network before. That includes Brian Evanson, whom we'll be talking about today, but also Lisa Tuttle. And there are actually a surprising number of stories here. There are 23 stories in this book. So I think for most people, there will be a mix of you know, familiar favorites and also new discoveries, which uh, for my my bag anyway is a, uh, a recipe for a perfect anthology, really. So I would like to know how the idea for putting this anthology together uh, came into being.
1: So essentially, like you said, like the the idea of a of an anthology. Like I read so many anthologies when I was um, about five six years ago. Um, really getting back into short fiction, I had I had grown up with specifically like um, uh, you know seventies and sixties sci fi. So you know Arthur C. Clarke, a lot of Philip K. Dick was maybe my favorite writer growing up, and. Uh, after a period of, you know, wandering, uh, and like not doing a lot of reading, um, coming out of, of grad school for me, I decided I was going to get back into, uh, what was really going on con- in contemporary terms in terms of, you know, strange and experimental and like just really good speculative fiction. Um, and, and that entry for me, in a lot of ways like not really knowing where to start and really loving short fiction especially um, was anthologies um, a lot of uh, the, the, I think the if you ever to pinpoint the specific I guess you would say the 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 genesis of moon calves um, I was listening to there was a audiobook of Ellen Datlow's Best of the Best Horror of the Year, which is, uh, I think, the the 10-year sort of anniversary omnibus of her favorite stories from her um, sort of annual, like, reprint anthologies of of the horror stories that she loved the most uh, in a given year. And in that sort of collection, in that anthology, was a story called uh, The Man from the Peak by uh, Adam Goloski. And it was unlike anything I had read or listened to at that point in time. And it really captivated me. And so that was like this revelation for me of, you know, not, it was just not, not just me getting a survey of, you know, currently working writers, but it was a way for me to like fall in love with new, new authors. And I have pretty much constantly, I'm constantly reading anthologies. Like there were a lot of touchstones for this anthology that I'm making um, in in what's already out there. Um, but the start of this was I, I had read that story from Adam and read, then read his collection, um, which is, was called uh, worse than myself, came out in 2008 and loved all the stories in that, which were really unsettling to me in a way that I really enjoyed. And Um, just reach out to him and we got to talking. Um, I think as I was talking, saying before, uh, we were, we started recording, like, unless you're Stephen King, authors are just people and you can reach out to them and they'll usually talk to you. Um, and with Brian Evanson, there's a story there as well, but, um, with Adam, he had, um. He had edited a periodical called New Genre Um, around this, around the time that this story was coming out. It wasn't, the story wasn't in new genre, but it featured a lot of sort of weird sort of ghostly ominous stories like this. And, um, and so I was talking to him. I, you know, was doing well materially in my life, and I wanted to. I was getting a lot of of, of joy and, and you know fulfillment out of reading, and said, you know, what I would like to give back to a certain extent. And you know, I, I, I do write a little bit. Um, haven't been, been published much, but they use they say about writing that, and this is certainly the case for a lot of the people that I talk to. Is like people who write typically write what it is they want to read but can't find. Um, and for me publishing especially with with moon calves is it's like it's, it's like you publish what you want to have written <laughs> And so um, Evanson was on that list. but when I was talking to Golaski um, to Adam about uh, about new genre, I said, you know maybe I'm in a place where, I can, you know, start putting together my own like periodical or uh, or sort of an outlet to find new authors or you know get new stuff from established authors. And he sort of he said that's you know it's it's good, but it's also a ton of work. Not just in terms of you know each each specific issue, but it's a you know a process that never ends. And so it, you have to be. A certain sort of person and work a certain sort of way to really sort of do that sort of marathon project. And he said, "What might be a better idea is a anthology um, or a you know a, a contained single project." And he suggested specifically it should be hardcover, sort of in this sort of very high quality uh, object, sort of an art object. And that really appealed to me. And actually, since out of that conversation. Uh, it was during uh, COVID, and I was like, you know what? I'm, and, and just everyone was cooped up during the during the uh, the height of the pandemic. And so I was like, I'm just going to do this. Like, I'm going to make a commitment to myself. Like, this is going to happen. And there are a couple of of ground rules that I wanted to set for myself. Foremost among them that I was going to pay, you know, pro rates, and you know, and reach out to people that are that wouldn't necessarily you know, be seen or read uh, in a, uh, in a weird fiction book. I wanted to challenge some literary quote unquote literary authors that I knew to write more in a ominous mode. And so the point of it, I think uh, what I really wanted to do sort of speaking to what you were talking about before was um, was create a anthology that had names that would be you know, pretty familiar or familiar to a lot of readers like Brian Evanson, Lisa Tuttle, uh, Steve Rasnick. Tim is also in there and he is extremely prolific and, and Danny Lavery folks that people have heard of. And then that's sort of the hook uh, that gets you in um, and sort of this promise that if you like this author, you might also like these authors as well that you haven't heard of. And that was sort of the purpose that I wanted to, um, wanted to fulfill. And just generally when I'm reading, like if I'm really enjoying something, I'm always wishing that, you know, I could share it with people. Um, so it was a good opportunity both to share those new authors with, with readers, but also pay those authors to, to keep doing what they're doing.
0: Well, that is an absolutely wonderful service, really, that you have provided for well, maybe all readers everywhere, but specifically for the fandom of all sorts of speculative fiction. I mean, there should be—I wish there were—more anthologies like this out in the world. I share a lot of your story about you know, love of anthologies. They were incredibly important to me, really, as a as a teenager, as an adolescent. I would you know find anthologies. In fact, I read all of the Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling anthologies. In fact, I still get all of those every year. That was how I discovered writers, uh, really a big part of how I discovered whole genres and types of writing. You learn what you like. It's a real service just for the the longevity of reading, right? The longevity of fiction as we move into a, a, a culture that is increasingly, I think, distanced from that. So I'm really glad that moon calves exist. And uh, at the very least, it will live on my bookshelf. And uh, uh, hopefully someday my son, when he's uh, when he himself is a teenager, will discover it down here and find some favorites as a result. Uh, of course, I'll have to lure him uh, to the bo- basement bookshelves by pretending that he's forbidden to look at the basement bookshelves. That'll be the, the trick there. But uh, at any rate, yeah, I'm glad that this exists. It is a fantastic volume. I should let listeners know that It's available digitally now. There's also a hardcover physical version available, I think. I mean, I have one, I will say, but I have the impression, John, that this was actually a limited run. So are these still available for people?
1: Yes, there are uh, currently, as of this recording, copies available. And those, um, I had some trouble, I don't know why they make you jump through so many hoops to uh, to to sort of be on Amazon. So I'm not on Amazon right now. The, the book itself, the hardcover, uh, is available, uh, for just the 38 bucks, um, which I thought was a a reasonable price point, um, on, uh, the no press website. You can also get an EPUB version now. And actually I was able to, uh, to get the, uh, the Kindle edition, uh, up on the, uh, on the Kindle store. So you can find it there as well.
0: And I'll have links for all of that in the the show notes just to make things easier for listeners. But I I will say I really want to plug the physical volume here because it is, I mean, it's just gorgeous, John. It's one of the best looking, one of the best produced books in my collection. The paper quality is phenomenal, which is not true from mainstream major press books anymore. Uh, This is durable. It's something that indeed my son will inherit and be able to pass on to whomever he wants to pass it on to. And that matters to me a lot, I will say. Uh, But also just to talk about the book as a physical object. It's got a cover by one of my favorite painters. That's Odilon Redon, whom uh, we've talked about on the show before, Brandon and I have, and then also has some really gorgeous end sheet paintings by Justine Neuberger. So yeah, I recommend listeners get the physical copy while you can. doesn't sound like there are actually a whole lot left, so jump on that while you still can, but uh, the digital copy is there as well. And as I said, I'll have links for all of that in the show notes. Let's go talk about today's story, which, as we have said, is by Brian Evanson, who who has contributed a story to Moon Calves. The story we're going to talk about here today is Wind Eye, and I'll just get us started by providing a synopsis for the story. For listeners who haven't read it, I'll do this as briefly as I can, and then we can uh, uh, then we can really chew on this for a while, because it's a fantastic story, and I think there's a lot to talk about. Wind Eye is set in our world. I think it's also set more or less in our present are now, though that is actually something I have a question about. But at any rate, it's America. It's now-ish. It's a third-person story about an unnamed man who is at least middle-aged, and it's really a story about his childhood. He has a younger sister, and when they were kids, they used to play imagination games together around their house. Uh, in fact, the games were often very much about the house. And for example, they would get onto part of their roof. They would feel under the shingles with their hands and pretend that something was you know, under there going to get them. And they also would close each other in trunks in order to freak each other out. And I don't know, just that general sort of uh, hijinks. and. Uh, The man is remembering all of this fondly, right? None of this is about how traumatized he was to be locked up in a trunk or something like that. He's remembering his sister and these antics very fondly. But this is a horror story, so there is some horror. And here it is. One day, they noticed that there are more windows on the outside of the house than there are on the inside. Just one window, I should be clear. But what that means is that uh, when they look and see a round window on the outside, they just cannot find it from the inside, no matter what they try. And their grandmother calls this not a window, but a wind eye. And the man imagined this as how the wind sees inside their house. But naturally, right? They're kids, so they're super curious about this. And so the younger sister reaches out from a proper actual window to try to touch the frame of this wind eye from the outside. And she does. She touches it. And then she's gone. She just vanishes, and the Wind Eye also vanishes with her. What's more, their mother doesn't remember her. In fact, no one does. No one remembers her except the older brother. And when he talks about her, they think that something is wrong with him, that he's delusional in some way. And he has now carried this knowledge with him for decades. And now in this story, he is reflecting on this loss and reflecting on his grief. And That's the story in the tightest nutshell that I could make it. And maybe just to kick us off talking, John, I'll just ask you, since you chose this story, what do you love about this story?
1: Wind Eye is a great, like, weird little horror story. But it's also, I think, a a great introduction. It was an introduction for me um, and sort of an encapsulation of a lot of what Evanson, sort of as a writer, as a craftsman, uh, really does with stories and, and with, with language. Um, and I, I think, uh, basically there, I mean, for me, what I really take away from when Dyer is like, are, are the elements of minimalism and I think really crucially for, uh, for Evenson, especially in this time period, when he's writing, uh, about the inadequacy or imprecision of language, um, he does so much with that, but all, but yeah, just, it's a great sort of dread inducing yarn and like really weird. Um, And I just, this was a story that um, when I was coming up as a writer, I was in workshops and I was the only guy doing, (laughs) doing genre work, which I'm sure, you know, everybody who's out there writing genres probably maybe had that, uh, had that experience. But my teacher was like, have you read, like the 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 work that you're doing, uh, specifically with things like trying to be obscure or trying to, you know, leave things out of a story for the right for the reader to imagine. Have you read Brian Evanson? Have you read Wind Eye specifically? And I said no, and he sent that to me and it was like a, opened up all sorts of dark corners for me to to, to explore.
0: Yeah, it's a phenomenally well-crafted story. And I want to talk actually quite a bit about the the writing craft here. And in fact, even really get some feedback from you on this story from the perspective of, of being an editor. I want to, maybe before I pose that type of question to you, though, uh, I actually want to just talk a little bit about, well, some of the things that I hinted at in the story are that, that I have questions about even the veracity of what's going on here, or you know, the objectivity, maybe I should say, of what's going on here, the perspective from which we should be seeing this. Maybe as a preface to that, I actually want to quote you to you, if that's, uh, that's not too weird. Uh, one thing I'll say before I do that is just that uh, you have in the book Mooncaps here, you have written a really great uh, editors afterward. And uh, one of the things that you say in here, and I'm going to quote, but I also, there will be some ellipses here as well. But one of the things you say is, what always stuck to me were stories which left pieces of themselves in my outstretched hands, unresolved questions or furtive gestures whose meanings could only be inferred. The rationalist in me wanted to be rid of these loose ends, wanted them knowable, clean, and accounted for but the persistence of a misfitting thing soothed the surrealist in me like a weighted blanket. And I love that dichotomy there, duality there, the rationalist and the the surrealist. I think all of us as readers of weird fiction have some (laughs) semblance of that in us. But this story to me just screamed out unresolved questions (laughs) and and maybe furtive gestures as well. And I think I probably have a sense of what your answer is going to be. But I just have a real broad question here about even what type of story this is, right? Which is to say, is this a story about some kind of supernatural accident, or is this a story about a false memory and some kind of delusion, some kind of psychological breakdown? Uh, Maybe the shorter way to put that is just, was there ever actually a sister? What's the horror in this story? Is it a, a psychological breakdown, or is there something supernatural happening?
1: I think from my read of the story is that there is uh, some element of magical accident. I I was reading it earlier today and I was thinking that like the, that in this story, magic is like a loaded gun for these characters. Like this is a story about, you know, uh, just because the characters don't understand what they're doing with the thing doesn't mean they can't hurt themselves with it. I do think that there was a, a, a sister and she vanished, but I think, um, and one of the things about Evanson generally, um, as as you sort of alluded to, um, is you know he leaves a lot of lack of rev- not lack of resolution necessarily, but a lot of uh, uncertainty. His his work is very much about uncertainty. And I mean, for me, I don't privilege uh, one reading of a story over another. Like when when I would be in workshops, for example, or in book clubs, uh, talking about. Stories, especially weird stories like this one, you know, we the the tendency among the group would be to try and nail down. Okay, what is actually what is actually happening, and what I always, I, th- I, th- I felt like moving towards a consensus in that sense of you know we we think this is what a lot of times it. it was framed in terms of what is the author trying to do or what is the author trying to, what's the story that the author started with and is now trying to impart to the audience. I always found it most thrilling and, and fun and, uh, and really edifying the the point of the reading for me was to come into those, to those book, uh, those sort of discussions. And I wasn't all the one, always the one doing this, but if someone came in with this like a wild, interpretation or they missed something. And like a lot of times it was just someone missed one element that everybody else did and, or everybody else caught and their reading of the story just went in this entirely different direction because they did not account for this one thing. And that capacity to read a story and come out with something different, something sort of personal, I think I, that I I have that reading of the story as, you know, being about kids playing with magic and, and, you know, coming up with a, with a dark result, but I think there would be, there's definitely room within the story. Um, I think every story, you know, contains within it. I say that stories contain within them, the seeds of every possible interpretation they can come out with, even like the most outlandish ones. And so I think to your point, you could definitely read this story as someone who is, um, who is psychologically sort of tormented uh, by by delusion by something that never happened. Um, But I, my, what makes me most excited, uh, the the reading that makes me most excited about this story is that something did. (laughs) Um, What exactly happened? That's a, that's another question entirely.
0: Before we even talk about Evanson's actual intent here. I mean, let me just say that I applaud the way in which you embrace other people's headcanon, right? Allowing people to, to interpret stories the way that they want, have the story mean what it means to them in the way and on the level in which it, it means that to them, and to just call that good. I think that uh, this is something internet fandom has uh, has done to us, is to entrench us in uh, hills to die on, I guess is the phrase that we often use, and to create camps around that, which I don't think enhances joy of of literature or stories, I think uh, reduces it, sadly. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of headcanon, but I do think that you're right, that it is Evanson's intent here for us to believe in the objective existence of the sister and that some kind of magical accident has, in fact, happened here. That is a terrifying story on its own. And it's not until the very end of the story that you even begin to get any kind of hints that maybe that's not what happened or, you know, for us to discover as readers that everyone else in this story, except for the point of view character, does not believe in the objective existence of this sister, such that then we, the readers, are going to call that into question. And even though I agree with you that Evanson, I think, wants us to objectively believe in, in the existence of that sister, I found questioning that, and in fact, reading the point of view character as someone who has suffered some kind of trauma here, some kind of psychological trauma. For me, that was actually super moving and even kind of cathartic. Uh, A story that I think I have shared somewhere on the network before is that uh, my wife and I had a daughter, and when she was seven, she was kidnapped by ninjas. And that's not true. We never had a daughter and none of our child is, we do have a real child now who has not been kidnapped by ninjas. And that's a ridiculous thing, kidnapped by ninjas. We were even living in the house next door to my childhood home, which was torn down before my wife and I ever met each other. At the the point that uh, this seven-year-old existed, my wife and I hadn't even known each other for seven years. And so what I'm getting at here is that this is a dream that I I had one night when we were living in our, our apartment. And Yet somehow this dream was so real to me that for years, two years, almost two years, I thought this was a thing that really had happened to us. But of course it hadn't. The dream itself had not even happened to anyone but me. So my wife couldn't even be there with me in my grief for this imaginary seven-year-old who was kidnapped by ninjas. But nonetheless, I would find myself frequently staring out a window or maybe if I was uh, at a bar reading a book or you know story that we were going to podcast about closed the cover on it said i'm going to think about this would find my mind wandering to where is she now what more can i have done to have found this person who never actually existed. And this was something that didn't go away from me until our actual child was brought into the world. And so for me, reading this story, I felt like I have lived this experience. And actually, it was really cathartic and really kind of healing for me to read the story through that lens, even though I think that your lens is right. So anyway, that was a long-winded story there about something that never actually happened. Just to, to emphasize your point there, right? that we can get different meanings out of stories, that the ob- objective or consensus reading of the story story is not the most important thing for us to be talking about when we're talking about stories or to even be getting out of stories just as as readers of them. And uh, so, yeah, I loved your point there, and I, I really appreciate that.
1: Similar, something similar happened to me, not exactly the same thing, but I remember there was a specific, like, um, uh, as a kid, I got into this accident once, uh, and um, I remember... Uh, it was, I, had been, I was attacked by a dog that had gone off a leash. And I, I th- thankfully, I, you know, it, just by some miracle, like I just got like one little nick on my, uh, he bit the top of my head and just like scratched my scalp. And then that was it. But I went into shock and had that whole thing of like, uh, if, if you've ever been in, in shock, sometimes you'll get blind spots. You'll get like, there was this, it's like when you look in, directly at a light and close your eyes where you have this like bruise almost in your vision. Like there's like a blemish and just in the center of your eyes, sometimes this happens as hysterical blindness. I I had a hysterical blindness where there was just this expanse of like, like this bluish purple bruise on my vision. And that went away. But after, for a couple of years afterwards, there was this feeling that I had, I would think about sometimes, you know, in quiet moments is like, there is another me out there. Like there's a version of me where that went very differently, or I was much more affected by it. And uh, like, and essentially that I had identified that blindness as like a, some sort of splitting point. And I had this, I had this real feeling sometimes that, if I went out into the world and like looked hard enough that I would find another version of myself who would have this very different experience. And like that, and that experience was this formative thing, literally formative in like created an, a new me, <laughs> um, which was very weird. It was like this changeling thing, but you can have that sort of unsettling, like that's uncanniness, um, which I think in Evanson's work and the new weird um, and a lot of, you know, what I try to do in the the anthology and things I love to read, like that is the atmosphere that you're trying to create. And, um, and Evanson. Yeah. in this story, I mean, I, I I think you might be onto something there just in terms of, I mean, there there are, um, there are hints throughout the story. Right. And one of the things is um, with Evanson is that, you know, he's so minimal, every sentence is so every word is so considered and so you have things like um like i mean you, you can read into certain things that are left here and there like with the fact that you know the mother is not there it, like it, unex, inexplicably like the 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 mother is not there once the sister is sucked into the wind eye but he go and so the, the narrator goes out and like you know tries to find her but when she when he comes back she's there suddenly or the fact that you know that it's mentioned that the father has left, and I think maybe one uh, one reading you can take is that there's something, you know, that there is some prefiguring difficulty that might have you know led to this growth of a you know of a delusion. But yeah, I mean, that uh, <laughs> that is uh, one of the ways that this story kind of gets under your skin
0: yeah, it definitely leaves me wondering what is the backstory for this family, no matter what, right? It does seem there's been some kind of trauma on these kids in some way that they've recently moved to a house that is maybe old and you know has loose shingles up on the roof, weird architecture and so on. and you know why are they? playing in the house and only with each other and not, you know, out with their own friends, you know, there's an age difference here and so on. Right. So those were all questions that I was just having even passively while reading it. And, and you're right. Evanson then builds on a type of suspense there and in fact, I wound up even having some questions about how old the the point of view character actually is. I was, I you know, by the end of the story, I was just genuinely mistrustful of so much of the information in the story, and all of that's just the mood that Evanson built so so expertly. And I think you know, you, you called it unsettling, and unsettling is absolutely what is happening here. You know, I think. And I think if we go back to your reading of the story where, yes, the, the sister existed, there was a magical accident, you know, in that reading of the story, this is kind of a haunted house story, right? They, they've, they're in this house, they're exploring this house, and then there's something sinister about the house. Something bad actually happens that is the house itself doing something. But I had the real sense here as well that the house is maybe not haunted on its own, that this is actually something that they do to the house themselves or bring to the house with these games that they are playing, right? That what's haunted actually might be them and not the house. What do you think of that?
1: That is, I think, a a good read just, you know, in terms of the structure of the story, because I mean like it, it's actually, it's really interesting to me the way that Evanson often writes I and mean, in reference to minimalism, like the way the story opens with this focus on the house. Um, as you noted, like we don't know how old this, these characters are. We don't really have a sense. And this is something that's really um, common within Evanson, Evanson's writing. Like there are all of these gaps. Um, we don't know the names of the characters. We don't know where this takes place. We don't really have, um, uh, we don't have names. We don't know how old they are necessarily. We have a, a general sense. We have a general sense of a lot of things, but what's really strange to me reading Wind in the context of everything else that I've read from Evanson is like that, that attention to detail in those first paragraphs of, um, of describing like the color, like the, the state of the house, and yet at the same time, by the end, by the, when the wind eye disappears, the house sort of disappears as well. Um, and it just becomes this solely internal thing, but you make, but you make a point that like, you know, I think the, the narrator of the story sort of calls this out or calls out this possibility it says so. There's a there's a passage in there where it says, for a time, it felt like he had brought the problem to life himself by stating it. That if he hadn't said anything, the half window wouldn't be there. And there is this sense, and it, like as you mentioned, like the this these imaginative games, it put me in mind of um, <laughs> of something like uh, like what you would call gnostic sort of magic, or like this. Are these ideas of magic, like if you go back to these ancient traditions of like, uh, I think it's in the Kabbalah as well, like this, the specifically it comes from this, um, this understanding of the Bible or of, of Genesis, you know, starts with when, you know, God says, let there be light. And so there's this analysis of that that says, well, it's the speaking that God does. It's he he says but there, there's light and then there's light. And so there's this sense of that language or words can be literally creative, can be metaphysically creative. And so there's something that's happening in this story, certainly in the early going between these two siblings where they are imagining things. And the the, the implication or like the, the suggestion or the possibility, I think, is being laced by Evanson that when the sister sort of, you know, very memorably is is slipping her hand under these, uh, these shingles and the brother, the narrator is describing what's there. And there's a, there's a line in there where she like, it becomes too real for her. And she pulls her hand back. There is this insinuation that they are actually through their capacity for imagination, making things happen um that when the brother describes something that's under the shingle there is actually something under the shingle they're imagining that into being and i think my what's really crucial to my read of of that sort of interpretation of the story two things that happen just before you know the wind die appears one is that the 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 narrator gets older or is said to get older and his relationship to the house changes, um, he says. Like essentially, he was, and this is something that's very strange. and I'm, I'm still trying to sort of figure out. He says that he loses the ability to consider individual elements of the of the house in like in by component, like the like. It, but his sister, being younger, still can. Like this idea that he can only see. All of a sudden, you can only see the house in gestalt. He can only see, he can't see the trees and the forest, you know, he can, you know so forth with the tree, that sort of thing. And that troubles him. And then, but the second thing that happens is that, you know, we have this establishment of a game where the author, or the, where the, the sister asks the brother to describe something. And then what happens is once that change happens, once the brother, thinks there's something wrong with the house. And I think this is one of the key questions of the story is like, and that is sort of central to the story is, was there something about the house or did they make something about the house? And the, but the thing is what they, what happens is he asks her to describe something. He described, he asks her to describe the house, which is the first time that happens in the story. And that's where the Windike seems to come from. He's like he doesn't know what's wrong with the with the with the house and is and so he asks her to describe it and she says there's something there's a no, there is a window and there's a there's a point in that story actually where he says like after that point he's like he he covers his face it doesn't describe being uh being like shocked or th- horrified but I think that's a sort of a weird oblique like section where the narrator sort of realizes that they have done something. They don't know yet uh, how bad that's going to get for them, but there's something there. I think uh, maybe vaguely about childhood and the games we play when we're kids and sort of the magic of that, the brother loses access to it through aging, his sister st- is still in it, and there is something is imbalanced there, and I think, and it's it's accidental, but they create this window, and something goes wrong, or the wind die, and something goes wrong with it. Um, but it's just, it's Evanson does this sort of thing often, where there's like this almost an Epistemologic, epistemic uh you know question of you know where are these things happening um actually there were, when i was talking to evanson about the about contributing to the uh moon anthology we were talking about you know the functions of these choices that you that he makes and all writers make when they write, and he referenced a um, I don't know if I put it in the editors after, afterward, but we were talking about there's a um, sort of a philosopher named uh, Eugene Thacker who uh, writes. He wrote a couple of different um, uh, sort of treatises on the philosophy of horror, and one of the things that Brian really took away from those readings and one of the things that he says is like really integral to his, the way that he writes is the question in horror of is there something wrong with the world or is there something wrong with me? that sort of either or and he likes to he he likes I think to play in that uncertainty um, and sort of that sort of Kafka like absurdity and madness of something's wrong where is? What is wrong? Where is that wrongness? Um, but yeah, I, I think that I, I see this story in terms of that like creative language, which is really interesting to me also just because of, of Evanson's own relationship to language.
0: I think this is exactly right. I think at the core, this is a story about children's imagination and the power of that imagination. I think hopefully we all have good memories of this kind of imaginative play from our own childhood, whatever that might be. Maybe it is pretending there are monsters under under the shingles of your roof. Maybe it's inventing fantasy worlds with your best friend. Uh, maybe it's even just pretending to be characters from you know your own favorite stories and so on. Right? That we've all done that kind of imaginative play. And this is a story about that. And there's something very sweet about that. And in fact, the point of view character even is clear that he's remembering these things fondly, even though there's certainly a way that these experiences for other people might have been traumatic, the being locked in a trunk and that sort of thing. But for him, this was a really great time of his life. And I think a lot of us are are lucky enough to have yeah, memories like that, to have had experiences like that. But yet, there's something sinister here where where Evanson, I think, is posing this kind of what if question, right? This what if we actually had the power to not just have really vivid imaginations, but to actually compel things into being out of our imagination, what would happen then, right? And it's a sinister and genuinely unsettling story, and in fact, I have uh, a, a child who is just recently turned three, and he's really just gotten into imaginative play in this massive way in the last few months, and. Something that he is doing now is actually very similar to what the sister does in this story, which is he wants me to tell him stories about something and he'll give me a prompt. And so he hasn't given me a prompt about a window yet, but he might give me a prompt about a car that he finds interesting or the helicopter that flew over our house a while ago or something like that. And I will always ask him, is there a story you want to tell me about that? And he always says, no, you, you tell me a story. And uh, that's something that's been going on for a while, but I have not wanted to play that game in the five days it's been since I read this story for the first time, because now I'm worried that something is going to happen. And maybe on that note, let me bring us into really talking about writing craft. I mean, I think we have brought ourselves there together, but something that really struck me about this piece is that I was super compelled by Evanson's writing about children. And I think that's actually quite rare. I think a lot of people write about children and they don't do a good job of it. But I think Evanson here has really written about children incredibly well. And in fact, you brought up uh, a a passage here that I'd actually just like to read into the microphone so that listeners who haven't read the story can experience really the joy of this type of writing and this type of presentation of childhood here. Here's what the narrator of the story writes A few years later, when the house started to change for him, when he went from thinking about each bit and piece of it as a separate thing and started thinking of it as a house, his sister was still coming up close, entranced by the gap between shingle and wall, intrigued by the twist and curve of a crack in the concrete steps. It was not that she didn't know there was a house, only that the smaller bits were more important than the whole. For him, though, it had begun to be the reverse. I think It's a gorgeously written passage, but this also really captures something about what it is to be a child. And I think also what it is to be, to transition from childhood to adulthood, is to go through exactly this, to stop seeing every tree as if the trees are what's important, and to just start seeing the forest and to lose interest and lose sight of the trees in some way. And this is something I observe in my own three-year-old that I I don't know that he knows that our house is a house. I think he knows that it's it's a component of really tiny bits and pieces. And he knows things about every single stair and our stairs that I just would never ever notice. And that's what the world is like for these kids. And I've never read anyone say anything about that before, right? But this is something that I think Evanson has captured magically here. So I was really compelled by his writing about children. Did did that work for you? Were you compelled by this also? Yeah. And I, I think that's
1: one of the things, like the <laughs> magical things about the story about Evanson writing here, especially because he's so he's so minimal. I mean there's this it, there's this like um there's this resonance where or like essentially there's a literalization almost where yeah, I think you could, one way of reading this story is sort of as a metaphor from that—that that like aging out. The—the—the the, the, what the narrator has not lost is, you know, the necessarily that ability to imagine. He's lost a certain connection, uh, some certain understanding of the world that his sister has, and so there's there's now this there's, there's this rift between him and the sister. He's lost like as happened as what, you know, that happens with people Um just naturally, even in adulthood, like relationships and the nature of relationships between people, people change. And he is now like, it, I think the change is sort of you alluded to is like, he, he becomes the older brother. Now he's, he's not a child the way she is anymore. And that, even though this is a horror story, a weird horror story, that feeling of, of having lost something, not, not in the sense of like having something wink out of existence, but of like, of, <laughs> of just having something with someone. And then it's not there anymore. I think everyone has experienced that in in some way. I know I have. And the, one of the things that makes Evanston such a masterful writer and a, a writer and sort of quote unquote literary tradition is that he's able to sort of lace these things into, you know, into a horror story. Um, and there is all of this texture and, and, and real sense. And, 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 and it boggles my mind because like, as we were talking about, like these characters don't have names, we don't know what they look like. We don't know really their context at all. All we really know is that like what he chooses to do, what, what Evenson does is just present us in the, in that early going where they're just interacting with each other. And, you know, the, the narrator isn't overthinking it. They're, they're, treating each other the way children treat each other, where it's just like this acceptance of things. Um, And it seems like that change, that shift that leads to the wind eye is now the narrator is reflecting and, you know, and is, has, uh, is nostalgic already for this thing that he just had and he doesn't have anymore. Um, And, in that sense, you—if this, in the weird way, the story is like of a piece with like, you know, Stephen King's *The Body*, or like these stories that are about, like you said, about childhood and about like the loss of childhood—and I just think that's really excellent. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think there's even actually a way of, of pairing this up with The Polar Express, which is a story about the nostalgia for the magic of childhood and recognizing that people age out of that magic, right? That That's that's the difference between childhood and adulthood is magic is real when you're a kid and it's not when you're an adult. And it's, you know, The Polar Express is a sweet story full of nostalgia for a not just childhood, but also a, a bygone era when trains were awesome and that sort of thing. And yeah, I think there's a way in which Wind Eye feels like Brian Evanson read the last page of Polar Express and said, yeah, but what if this was a weird fiction story? And here it is, right? Which is uh, phenomenal. I was really profoundly moved by this story. I mean, moved might not be the right word, affected by this story. It Unsettled me, It scared me, frankly, and it has affected the way that I've been living my life. It has; I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. You know, all week since I I read it, I'm really grateful that you picked this story for us to read because it really has affected me. It's a it's a real masterpiece.
1: And, and as we're talking about it, like I'm thinking about, you know, one of the ways of you know, interpreting the story and about that sense of like of losing magic. Like there's this the way that the wind eye and the way that the wind eye sort of the way that the sister vanishes, like what's happening there. Like he seems to, um, he identifies the wind eye with, you know, the wind as some like, you know, will some sort of entity. Right. But the more I think about it, the more we talk about, especially about childhood, there's this sense of, to me, when I read it, it's not the sense that the, that the, the window has snatched up or whatever in the window has snatched up his sister is that the sister is still in this, still has this ability to imagine things and imagine and go places through imagination and touching the window is some threshold. I mean, the window is literally a threshold, but where she, she goes somewhere in, in imagination and he can't follow her the way he could before. And so there's this sort of like, I guess make, you make it into like a, a sort of a existential catastrophe through this story of like, they literally it's like a river that he can't cross anymore. And she's gone off to some other, some other realm. Um, and so in that sense, it is this very much a, a sad story about, um, you know, about the, the change that happens from childhood to, I guess, adolescence or adulthood. Um, and, and, And this is the thing, like when you talk about stories like this, these things start to sort of percolate and come up. And like I had before we had like when I read it this morning, I didn't really have it was not on my mind the sort of that ache to it, the nostalgic ache. But the more we talk about it, the more real it gets, um, which I think is just is a testament to how how brilliant Evanson is as a writer.
0: It's so powerful. It's so good. And I think that you're right to be putting Evanson in the same sentences as Kafka and some of these other literary greats. I think it's just, I think he's a phenomenal writer. I think this is an amazing example of his writing. I'm so glad that you had me read this today because otherwise I would not have read this story, I don't think. So I'm really grateful that you brought it to my attention. I hope listeners feel that way as well. And I think that's a, a good note on which to close out this episode. So John, I've just thanked you for having me read this story, but let me also thank you uh, really just so much for guest hosting with me today. This has been a real delight. Thank
1: you. And it's been, it's been great to visit and talk about this story and read this story. And um, I hope anyone who's listening to this, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with Evanson, seek him out because he is uh, a modern master. <laughs>
0: And I don't think we even really finished talking about this story in some sense. We're leaving an awful lot on the table here. So uh, if you, dear listener, would like to talk about this story with us, I hope you'll come find us on the new Clay Temple Media Discord server. Please do also be sure to pick up a copy of John's brand new anthology, Moon Calves. I've got links in the show notes to make all of that very easy for you. Uh, John, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with what you're doing?
1: If you are, I don't know how long Twitter is going to last and it's in a weird space right now, but I spend entirely too much time on it and I am at, uh, at basic underscore channel. Um, it's a sort of a, a techno it's a, it's a. Uh, am <laughs> at basic at basic underscore channel. And that is a, a joke about techno and Seinfeld, um, which is very much me, but, um, you can also just reach me if you want to get in touch, uh, on email. Um, that's no press publishing. No press is my press. And, um, actually after this, in a couple of months, I'm waiting on a, um, a manuscript from, uh, from Adam Goloski as I was talking about before, and that's going to be our second book or my second book rather is a uh, collection from Adam. But yeah, so, uh, reach out to me. Um, if you have any, questions, concerns about anything. And um, if certainly if you want to talk stories, because I am, I love, there's a few things that I love more than deep reading. And this was just an absolute delight to, to be here and to be able to, to talk about this story and about Brian Evanson with you.
0: Well, when the next book from N.O. Press comes out, I hope we will be able to have you back to talk about that as well. I think that would be a blast. But on that note, I will close out this episode. Brandon and I will be back again soon. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.